So welcome to the opening session of our fourth annual Religions and the Practice of Peace colloquium series here at Harvard. I'm David Hempton, Dean of the uh, Divinity School. So thanks to all of you for being with us tonight, those of you joining us for the first time, members of our cross-disciplinary RPP working group, and colleagues and friends from across Harvard University and the local area. Thank you for coming, we're very pleased to have you. We'd especially like to thank our guest speakers, Fanya Davis and Sujatha Balaga for traveling all the way from California to be with us tonight. Uh, so thanks for coming. And we'd also like to thank the co-sponsors of tonight's session, the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School, the Prison Studies Project, and the Transformative Justice Series at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We'd also like to express our gratitude to RPP's generous supporters, um, including the Reverend Karen Vickers-Budney and Mr. Albert Budney for helping make these and other RPP activities possible and to all the RPP team for their work in organizing this event. There are a lot of people who do remarkable work behind the scenes to get all of this together, so thank you so much for that. A great deal has happened in our country and in our world in the months since we last met. With the need for concerted efforts for sustainable peace growing more urgent by the day, here in the US we see deepening divides around politics, race, religion, and immigration a resurgence of hate groups and extremism, and shocking incidents of mass violence of frightening frequency and increasing scale. Around the world, societies are torn by war and sectarian strife. Minorities are suffering persecution and violence, and the threat of nuclear war appears ever more imminent. Meanwhile, humanity is also facing other big problems, some imperiling our very survival as a species, from climate change and devastating natural disasters to mass migration and deep economic inequality. All of these big problems intersect with destructive com conflict in complex ways, as we've been finding out over the previous three years. And all of these things will demand from us unprecedented local and global cooperation if we're going to surmount them. The gravity of our present moment calls upon each of us to examine our role in our human family situation and to seek creative ways to cultivate healing, bridge building, constructive engagement, and positive transformation in all our spheres of influence. Reflecting on our responsibilities and opportunities here at Harvard, this year a number of our faculty, students, fellows, alumni, and staff from across the university are launching a Sustainable Peace Initiative, SPI, to seek ways to advance leadership, collaboration, and creativity for sustainable peace at Harvard and beyond. So some of the questions we'll be exploring are these. What, what different perspectives do we bring to the meaning of peace? And what is needed to make peace substantive, shared, and sustainable? How does humanity's quest for sustainable peace intersect with our quest to address our other big problems. Can mainstreaming sustainable peace as a goal of leadership across all sectors and collaborating strategically to develop innovative ways of operationalizing this goal, can this help humanity bring about a more humane and harmonious world? 
what holistic approaches will enable us to address the many dimensions of conflict and peace from the spiritual and cultural to the institutional and structural to the political and economic? What insights on these questions can we draw from our academic disciplines and our spiritual, ethical, and cultural traditions? These are all big questions, and they're all big questions for all of us to address. So these will be the themes um, in this RPP colloquium series this year, and we look forward to engaging with you on these questions in our public sessions uh, month by month. Since it's imperative for our human family to shift to holistic and spiritually engaged approaches to dealing with these difficult matters, we can think of no better speakers to help us begin our exploration this year than the guests we're fortunate to have with us tonight, who will share with us on the topic of the restorative justice approach, wisdom and spiritual resources for sustainable peace in our communities. Janet Giazzo, who was to be our moderator this evening, regrettably learned that she is unable to join us, and we're very delighted that kindly filling that role for us will be Elizabeth Rukaya Lee Hood, who has been Research Associate for Religions in the Practice of Peace since RPP's inception. Growing out of her uh, experiences as a person of multiracial and multicultural background, and her early encounters with mentors in African-American, Muslim, and transnational Islamic communities, Liz has been studying for over three decades the ways in which the wisdom traditions of diverse religions and cultures have empowered and continue to empower people here in the United States and around the globe in the practice of peace and positive individual and social transformation. A graduate of Harvard College in social studies, women's studies, and Chinese, and of Harvard Divinity School and world religions, Islamic studies, and Arabic, she is currently a PhD candidate in the study of religion at Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Her professional and community activities have focused on civil rights, social justice, and intercultural and interreligious relations. She co-founded the first discussion and support group for multiracial students at Harvard College. She has been a community mediator and coach for the Harvard Mediation Program at Harvard Law School and other Boston area mediation organizations and co-designed and delivered the Harvard Mediation Program's first mediation training tailored for divinity students. She's worked in civil rights law, intercultural skills and conflict management training for international professionals, and culturally sensitive hospital and end-of-life care. She's a consultant trainer and facilitator for Essential Partners, a nonprofit working domestically and internationally to transform conflict through constructive dialogue. So her doctoral research, which she does in her spare time, uh, on prayer explores the traditional Islamic teachings on the relationship between spiritual practice, spiritual formation, lived spiritual ethics, and intimacy with the divine. So it's a great pleasure to invite Liz to um, introduce our two very distinguished visitors tonight. Liz, thank you. Thank you. So, Greetings, friends and family. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we're really honored to have you all here. It's really energizing and uh, really brings a lot of hope and upliftment to us because there are so many people here who are so serious about positive change and about thinking together um, deeply about how we can bring about a more humane and harmonious world. So we want to thank you very much for that. 
Um, just to say a couple of words, too, about the Sustainable Peace Initiative. So an impetus for our launching the Sustainable Peace Initiative this year is a recognition on the part of so many of us that addressing the magnitude of the challenges that we're facing as a human species, predominantly self-created ones, will demand not only a cross-sector approach, but also a major shift in our consciousness and our modus operandi, touching virtually every sphere of our lives. Three big types of big picture questions that we're asking ourselves and one another include, first, whether it's in our families, our communities, our nation here, or in our world, how can we shift to and begin acting upon a sense of we that's commensurate with the reality of our human interdependence? Mm -hmm. In other words, how can we begin to think and act like the human family that we are? Mm -hmm. I often think about it as taking on grandmother's mind, you know? Mm -hmm. um, or that is to shift to thinking and acting like a more functional family rather than the kind of dysfunctional family that we too often are. <laughs> In particular, how can we begin to heal and bridge our divisions and develop more positive relationships in the face of very real and often grave and traumatic harms, both historical and continuing? Second, how can we take on the daunting task of facing up to and beginning to seriously address our big structural and institutional problems that perpetuate cycles of harm, violence, and division, ones that usually feel so daunting, we feel helpless in the face of them, and so we you know, give up dealing with them. Problems such as mass incarceration, deep socioeconomic inequities, and entrenched racial disparities and injustices, the types of things we'll be discussing tonight. And where can we gain the vision to develop holistic approaches capable of dealing effectively with the immense complexity of these problems? Third, what role do we ourselves play and what have we been playing in this web of interdependent relationships that is our human family? If we wish to be effective agents of positive transformation in our spheres of influence, what shifts will that actually require of us, personally, relationally, ethically, and spiritually? So tonight, as we consider specific big problems such as mass incarceration and our criminal justice system here in the United States, we'll also be seeking to glean wisdom on these broader questions, wisdom that we can apply to our pursuit of sustainable peace more generally. So the two practitioners whom we're very blessed to have with us today have, I believe, been through the crucible of these issues in their lives and their careers. They've been blazing trails that are transforming the lives of many, our institutions, and pointing out paths forward for us on many levels. The first speaker will be Dr. Fania Davis, co-founder and director of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth and a national thought leader in the field. She's a longtime social justice activist, a restorative justice scholar and professor, and a civil rights attorney with a PhD in indigenous knowledge. Coming of age in Birmingham, Alabama, during the social ferment of the civil rights era, the murder of two close childhood friends in the 1963 Sunday school bombing 
crystallized within Dr. Davis a passionate commitment to social transformation. For the next decades, she was active in the civil rights, black liberation, women's, prisoners, peace, socialist, anti-imperialist, anti-racial violence, and apartheid movements. After receiving her, her law degree from the University of California, Berkeley in 1979, Dr. Davis practiced almost 27 years as a civil rights trial lawyer with a subspecialty in academic discrimination. During the late 1990s, she entered a PhD program in indigenous studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies and apprenticed with traditional healers around the globe, particularly in Africa. Dr. Davis has since taught restorative justice and indigenous peacemaking at graduate and undergraduate levels. She's also served as counsel to the International Council of 13 Indigenous Grandmothers. <laughs> Dr. Davis speaks and writes on the subject of school-based restorative justice, race and restorative justice, the indigenous roots of restorative justice, social justice and restorative justice, truth and reconciliation, youth-based restorative justice, the school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration, and other topics. Her numerous honors include the Ubuntu Service to Humanity Award, the Maloney Award recognizing exceptional contributions in youth-based restorative justice, World Trust's Healing Justice Award, the Tikkun Repair the World Award, the Bioneers Changemaker Award, and the Lafarge Social Justice Award. She is also a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. The Los Angeles Times named Dr. Davis a new civil rights leader of the 21st century. She's a mother, grandmother, dancer, and yoga and qigong practitioner. <laughs> Sujatha Baliga is director of the Restorative Justice Project and vice president at Impact Justice and a Just Beginnings Fellow. Her work is characterized by an equal dedication to victims and persons accused of crimes. She speaks publicly and inside prisons about her own experiences as a survival of child sexual abuse and her path to forgiveness. A former victim advocate and public defender in New York and New Mexico, Baliga was awarded a Soros Justice Fellowship in 2008, which she used to launch a pre-charge restorative juvenile diversion program in Alameda County. Through the Restorative Justice Project, Sujatha helps communities implement restorative justice alternatives to juvenile detention and zero-tolerance school discipline policies. She's also dedicated to using this approach to end child sexual abuse and intimate partner violence. Sujatha is a frequent guest lecturer at universities and conferences. She's been a guest on NPR and the Today Show, and the New York Times Magazine and The Atlantic have profiled her work. Sujatha earned her AB from Harvard and Radcliffe Colleges, her JD from the University of Pennsylvania, has held two federal clerkships and teaches a seminar on restorative justice at Berkeley Law School. Her personal and research interests include the forgiveness of seemingly unforgivable acts, 
restorative justice's potential impact on racial disparities in our justice system, and Buddhist notions of conflict transformation. Sujatha's faith journey undergirds her justice work. A longtime Buddhist practitioner, she is a lay member of the Gyuto Foundation, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Richmond, California, where she teaches meditation on Monday nights. She makes her home in Berkeley, California with her partner of 20 years, Jason, and their 11-year-old son, Satya. So thank you very much for being here. And let's give them a round of applause. So first, I'd like to invite up to the lectern Dr. Davis, who will be speaking on the spiritual roots of restorative justice, resources for cultivating peace in our communities. Thank you. Uh, thank you to all of, all of you, and especially to the organizers of this event. I want to say that I'm really grateful and honored to be invited to help kick off the Harvard Divinity School's RPP colloquium series to explore restorative justice and how it might advance uh, sustainable peace. I'm doubly honored to be able to do this with my dear friend and colleague, Sujatva Baliga. <laughs> we've, we've been walking this restorative justice path together for at least 10 years now and work closely together, especially in the early years. And I want to honor all of you in the audience for being here because I know you're here because you see so much suffering in the world, all of the suffering that, um, that uh, Dean Hampton listed earlier, um, the overwhelming um, amount of suffering in the world. And you're here because you want to do something to reduce that suffering. Um, I also wish to honor the ancestors of this land, the Wampanoag and others praying that we might walk this land in ways that honor them and their peacemaking and healing wisdom. In invoking the Wampaong, Wampanoag, sorry, we acknowledge this is an occupied land upon which we stand. And this is a post-genocidal land. And like uh, the harm of slavery, we have yet as a nation to tell the whole truth about this genocide, about this slavery, to take responsibility and to make amends. Because we have not healed from this original trauma, it perpetually reenacts itself, albeit in different guises, in different forms. Slavery and genocide are not dead. They have only evolved, as Brian Stevenson says. I want to acknowledge the community of Cambridge. How many of you are community people here tonight? Wonderful. Um, I want to acknowledge all of you uh, for the city of Cambridge's decision to declare the second month of October Indigenous Peoples Day in 2016. This is an act of decolonizing our history and it is an important step on the road to sustainable peace. I also wish to acknowledge the work that Harvard Law is doing, uh, catalyzed by the activism of black students and students of color and all students of conscience. Mm. Harvard is telling the truth about its complicity, its direct complicity in slavery and in the slave trade. And 
they are taking the first steps toward making amends. Whether removal of the official shield, renaming buildings to honor slaves who served in them, and most recently unveiling a memorial uh, during the biennial celebration, honoring enslaved people whose labor made possible the founding of Harvard Law. When Sujatha and I were walking over here, uh, we, we stumbled on it. It was just such a wonderful uh, thing um, on our way here. So these are all steps toward sustainable peace, and especially toward beginning to take the first steps to transform historical harm. In my elder years, I won't say how many, <laughs> I'm coming to realize the importance of embracing both the warrior and the healer in me. Not embracing one and rejecting the other, but embracing both, harmonizing what we often view as opposites. It took me a while to get there, but I believe this is another step toward peace, whether my own inner peace, or as I'll talk about a little bit later, uh, peace for our communities in the world, embracing the warrior and healer. Let me share with you the story of my own personal journey leading to this realization, and also share how this coupling of warrior and healer looks in the context of my work in Oakland schools and in efforts to transform legacies and aftermaths of slavery. I'll talk a bit to you about what RJ is. How many of you have read a book about restorative justice? Oh good, so I don't have to say too much. How many of you have had a training? Okay, right. um, bless you. Um, so on the story, my own personal story. So um, I was born in the most segregated city of the South, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. You may know it as Birmingham, but we called it Birmingham because of the frequency of the bombings that targeted the homes and churches of activists of the civil rights movement. I was born, believe it or not, atop Dynamite Hill. I kid you not, that was my neighborhood. This is part of my origin story. It was called Dynamite Hill because we as a black family moved into a previously all-white neighborhood. Other black families followed. The response of the White Citizens Council and of the Ku Klux Klan was to bomb our homes. We were very fortunate. Our home was not bombed, but houses all around us were. We would wake in the wee hours of morning to the sounds of explosions going off. I went to church just down the hill, about two blocks. Our church was bombed because of our interracial discussion groups. Right across from the church, the home of, we call him lawyer shores. Sometimes some people call them attorney shores. That's, that's our black uh, uh, sort of uh, colloquialism. Eternity shores rather than attorney shores, you, you, you get it? Yeah. <laughs> Eternity shores, or we call them lawyer shores. Anyway, he was an amazing civil rights attorney who worked with Thurgood Marshall uh, while he was an attorney with the NAACP and uh, engaged in incredible litigation to desegregate the city of Birmingham. His home was bombed not once, not twice, but three times with a fourth attempt that was unsuccessful. And then 
There was the Birmingham Sunday School bombing, which all of you, I'm sure, know about. September 5th, 1963. I lost two friends in that bombing. Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson. And so I left from these formative experiences and from this experience of racial terror every day of my life to go north to go to school. And I left the South with this ferocious, this fierce, this intense, an irreversible commitment to be a warrior for justice. I won't list the movements, you've listed them already earlier, but I was involved in almost every major movement of my time. When my husband and I moved to California and became active in solidarity with the Black Panthers, police broke into our home and shot my husband, almost killing him, with a bullet just millimeters away from his spine. We were charged with attempted murder of police. Thank goodness the judge, whose career has been ruined ever since, uh, dismissed the charges and found that breaking into our home it was unconstitutional. They had no probable cause, no reason to be in our home. So the charges were finally dropped after uh, they were dismissed and then we were re-indicted. This happened three or four times. And then not long after that incident occurred, my sister, Angela Davis, does everybody know who Angela Davis is in here? Okay, good, all right. Um, was targeted um, because of her political activities um, for really to be silenced, um, to be eliminated, uh, and that's not too strong a word, by then Governor Reagan and President Nixon. She was charged with capital murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy. And she went underground because all of her comrades, all of her friends were being killed and shot at, and like my husband, so she thought that she might be killed. She went underground, even though she was clearly innocent. Um, and she was captured um, October 13, 1970. And I immediately started to travel all over the world, speaking on my sister's behalf, uh, organizing the international movement. I was in my early 20s, I think. Um, and after that, after she was freed by a massive movement, um, I became a trial lawyer because I really admired the lawyers, the civil rights lawyers and criminal justice lawyers who were working on my sister's case. So I became a trial lawyer, thinking that I could be a more effective agent of social transformation in doing so. So then, after decades of cultivating the hyper-rationalists, hyper-masculinist, hyper-aggressive qualities that I was required to cultivate to be successful as an activist and as a lawyer. I started to feel burnt out. And I kind of knew, I intuitively knew that I was being invited to bring more healing and spiritual energies into my life to regain balance. Synchronicity dreams led me to shut down my law practice and I found a program in indigenous knowledge, recovery of indigenous knowledge. And I ended up apprenticing with, healer, with healers, especially in Africa. Then when I came back from Africa and finished the dissertation, I had learned about this thing called restorative justice. 
And it was an epiphany for me. It integrated the healer and warrior in me. I no longer had to choose to be just the warrior and not the healer or vice versa. This was a justice that is more concerned with getting well than getting even. This is a justice that, that is more concerned about healing instead of punishing. So let's talk a bit about uh, what restorative justice is. It is a worldview rooted in indigenous principles and the theory of justice that emphasizes bringing together everyone affected by wrongdoing to address their needs and responsibilities and to heal the harm as much as possible. So first up, it's a worldview. It's not just a conflict resolution method, although it can be effectively used to do that. It is also a worldview and a way of being present in the world. A way of being present in the world that brings about healing and wholeness rather than a way of being present in the world that brings about harming and devastation and discord. Note two, needs, responsibilities, healing. It's a needs-based justice, it promotes accountability, and it heals the harm to the degree possible. You could say that ours is a system that harms people who harm people to show that harming people is wrong. If I cause harm to you, then I create an imbalance in the scales of justice. The only way we can rebalance the scale under our system is for harm to be caused to me. If I cause, if, if I cause suffering, the only way to rebalance the scales is to cause me to suffer. And so we replicate harm. We respond to the original harm uh, with another harm. And the harm replicates indefinitely. Mm -hmm. A good way to understand the difference between the two kinds of justice is to go through this three-question exercise. What law or rule was broken? Who broke it? And what punishment is deserved? Normally when I do this, I hide the questions and I ask the audience. Uh, to figure out what those questions might be. We don't have time to do that now. Um, and restorative justice flips the script. Rather than blaming, adjudicating, and punishing, which sums up our criminal justice system, restorative justice asks, who was harmed? What are the needs and responsibilities of everybody impacted? And how does everyone impacted come together to address those needs and responsibilities and heal the harm to the degree possible? So some people confuse restorative justice with um, ADT or with arbitration, with mediation, with youth court, and all of these are wonderful alternatives to our punitive uh, justice system. But restorative justice is different in that it challenges the dominant assumptions in the way that we think about and do justice. And none of those others. Um, maybe transformative mediation does, but uh, most of the other ADRs do not um, challenge the paradigmatic assumptions. Even though restorative justice has only been around for the last 45 years or so, it is grounded in ancient ways of thinking about and doing justice. It is grounded in the bedrock principle 
Today affirmed by quantum mechanics that humans and all the Earth's presences and energies participate in a vast and luminous web of interrelationship and wholeness. To embrace restorative justice is to embrace a relational worldview, a relational justice. Humans are constituted by their relationships. Though frequently translated as a person is a person through other persons, perhaps a more accurate English rendition of Ubuntu would be a person is a person through their relationships. Through all their relationships, not just to humans. A person is a person through their relationship to the land to the waters, to the animals, to the air, and so on. Ubuntu emphasizes inter-identity and inter-racial relationality with all dimensions of existence. Criminal justice sees crime as broken laws and justice as punishment. Restorative justice sees crime as broken lives and justice as healing. Let me say that again. Mm -hmm. Criminal justice sees crime as broken laws and justice as punishment. Restorative justice sees crime as broken lives and justice as healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a justice that is healing is a path to a sustainable peace. I want to talk just a little bit about um, the work that we're doing in schools. Sujatha will talk about uh, justice applications. Um, so we started a pilot in 2006. The pilot was successful in eliminating violence at the school, reducing suspensions by 87%, eliminating teacher attrition, increasing academic uh, outcomes. Uh, it got the attention of a lot of principals and administrators in the school district. With some youth organizing and with a study by uh, the UC Berkeley Law School, um, restorative justice became official school dis discipline policy. And that is part of the whole theme of being a warrior and a healer. It's important that we as restorative justice practitioners not only uh, be skilled in facilitating beautiful uh, circles and facilitating what I call liberated spaces where people can be heard, where their voices can be spoken and heard, and where people feel seen and heard. Um, and, um, where we get to connect with one another in ways that are beautiful, in ways we ordinarily don't get a chance to do. And we do this primarily through the circle process. And through this process, amazing healing can happen. Um, girls who've been fighting all their lives become good friends. Young men who are not expected to graduate with a thick jacket of suspensions and arrests um, and a 0.0, .0 grade point average end up uh, graduating sometimes with honors because they have been seen, they have been heard. They may be sagging, they may be wearing a hoodie, but <laughs> they are not stereotyped as thugs, which happens so often. Um, in schools where restorative justice is the norm, uh, they, our youth thrive uh, because they are seen, because they are heard. It's important that we not only create that space for healing to happen, and for people to be seen, and people to be heard, and, and, and for there to be this sense of connectivity. That's amazing. We also need to transform systems through which our youth move, transform systems that are causing them harm in their lives, that are causing them to cause harm 
Because if you're harmed, that harm is not healed, you're going to replicate harm. So what this looks like in Oakland, the warrior part, is that we not only do the work of transforming, helping youth to transform their lives and teachers as well, but we do the work of transforming systems. So in 2010, as a result of the uh, work that we were doing, the trainings, uh, the coaching, uh, the pilot programs, the school district adopted restorative justice as official school policy. Today, I, I, there are, there are, there's a great study that and I'm not going to really go through it uh, because I don't want to uh, spend, go over my time. Uh, but from the five years, or in the five years between 2012 and 2017, suspension rates dropped 55% from 7.4 to 3.3. And of course, there are racial disparities in school discipline. Um, and we saw that for blacks, uh, it dropped from 14.1% to 7.3%. And for Latinas, Latinos, 5.4 to 2.3. And in doing this, we're not just bringing the numbers of suspensions down, okay? We are doing that, but a lot is happening with this. We know that when a child is suspended just once, their chances of being incarcerated triple, according to the UCLA Civil Rights Project. Their chances of dropping out double. Uh, and once you drop out, your chances are overwhelming that you will be incarcerated. Because most of the inmates in our prisons today are high school dropouts. And if you end up being incarcerated, um, you're, as, a, as a juvenile, that's a strong predictor of adult incarceration. And if you're incarcerated as an adult, all kinds of negative short and long-term uh, consequences ensue, including having children who are more likely to also be suspended and go through that school-to-prison pipeline. So this work is not just about it's, it's about saving lives and keeping kids out of the school-to-prison pipeline when we reduce suspensions. If we don't do both this healing work on interpersonal levels and this transformation of systems, we are like gardeners who, though devoted to healing the plant, totally ignore the state of the ecosystem, the state of the soil. So that's why it's important for us as restorative justice practitioners, and I've been, I've been kind of on a bandwagon about this uh, <laughs> uh, since I began working in restorative justice, because the restorative justice movement, unfortunately, in its early, in actually in its first three to four decades, had no racial justice, no social justice consciousness. It's really changing now, I'm happy to say. So I want to talk in my few remaining uh, minutes about this work of healing historical harms, which is dear to my heart. And that's why I was so moved when I came over and we saw the stone commemorating the enslaved's labor, uh, making Harvard Law School possible. We are a nation born in the blood of the enslavement of Africans and the genocide of Native Americans. We are a nation that, embracing white supremacy from its very inception, deliberately constructed, fabricated the pseudo-scientific notion of race to justify the unspeakable horrors of slavery. 
We are a nation that has been loath ever since to confront and be honest about the meaning of slavery, genocide, lynching, segregation, the internment of the Japanese in World War II, and the continuing, we see it today, abuse of communities of color. And the failure to undertake this national reckoning and national healing has precluded our ability to overcome the past. Slavery didn't end. It just evolved. Restorative justice is known for its efficacy in healing interpersonal harms, whether to address fights in schools or even homicide and crimes of severe violence. And Sujatha will talk about some amazing work that she's doing in that regard. Restorative justice is less known for healing systemic harms and historical harms. But it's my belief that if the, this amazing healing can happen between family members who have lost their loved ones to violence and the killer of those family members, if reconciliation and healing can happen there, then I have the hope and I have the belief that we can also utilize RJ, restorative justice, to address uh, racial harm, historical harm. Healing is so important for us in this nation. We are like a person who had a terrible trauma at birth. We're well into our years, but we have never healed that original trauma. A person who has never healed that original trauma. And a person who has never healed that original, that birth trauma, what's going to happen? They're going to keep reenacting that same trauma, maybe in a different form. But that is exactly what has happened to us as a nation. We have had important pro-democratic struggles in this country that succeeded in abolishing slavery, yet the racial terror and racial violence that was the essence of slavery survived and continued on with the convict leasing system and the 13th Amendment exception to the, to the abolition of slavery for persons who were incarcerated. The racial terror that was at the essence of slavery continued with Jim Crow and lynching. And though we had movements, we made amazing advances to end Jim Crow and to end lynching, they have been transformed and morphed, they have morphed to mass incarceration, the school-to-prison pipeline, police terror. I think we've gotten to the point in this country where we realize, where we realize that if we don't undertake this healing of that original trauma, we will continue, we will continue to see this harm replicated generations over generations. If we do not interrupt the intergenerational transmission of the original trauma of slavery, requiring us as a nation to embark upon a collective healing journey, this trauma will perpetually reenact itself. We're seeing truth-telling and racial healing initiatives and processes and reparations processes bubbling up all over the country. We don't have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission going like South Africa did, but it's got to be different here for us. It's got to bubble up. We've got to be doing healing circles in communities, 
It's got to be very participatory, not a top-down process where commissioners and experts hear the, the, the stories and, and make the recommendations. We need to be doing encounter circles between police officers and families uh, who have lost their loved ones to police violence. That is actually happening in this nation. Unfortunately, though, we know whenever a police killing occurs, and this is great, and it's all due to the Ferguson activists, to the young people in Ferguson, that whenever a police killing occurs, we will know about it. It will have international headlines. But what we don't know is about this amazing racial healing work that's going on. We know about Harvard's uh, work to tell the truth about its complicity. And we know maybe about Brown's work in Georgetown, but there is a group of more than 30 universities, it's called University Studying Slavery, that is doing this work across the nation. And of course, you probably know about Brian Stevenson's work, uh, developing a lynching museum, uh, uh, a slavery museum, and uh, taking soil from lynching sites um, in various parts of the country and bringing them to this lynching museum, to the future site of this lynching museum, and mixing the soil into the cement that is going to be used to create uh, the, 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 those uh, museums. So just talking a little bit about the things that are happening in the nation that are bubbling up uh, that so many of, so few of us know about. One of the things that we and our joy are doing is a mapping project. Every day I find out about a new racial healing, a reparations, or a memorialization initiative. Um, and so what we're doing is a mapping project. So we'll end up with an electronic map that shows where all of this work is happening all over the country. And um, I, I, my hope is that uh, eventually, and hopefully in, in, in sooner rather than later, that we will have a national convening to bring together all of these people who are doing this work um, so that we will have a, a sense of ourselves uh, as a movement. Right now, the efforts are pretty siloized. Um, of course, after Charleston, uh, we saw the, the Confederate flags coming down. We saw the memorials. 60 memorials were brought down, mm. Confederate memorials, mm. after Charleston. Mm. And I think that had a lot to do with the amazing uh, forgiveness of the families uh, um, who were victims, whose loved ones were killed by Dylan Root. Uh, people said things like, after witnessing the forgiveness of these families, I was moved to reconsider uh, flying the Confederate flag in, in my home. I was moved to think about taking it down and to, to take uh, memorials, Confederate memorials down. In ways, this forgiveness accomplished that in ways that political argument and, and, and reading uh, words had never done for them. There is an organization called Coming to the Table. I don't know if any of you know about that. Um, they take their name from Dr. King's speech. I have a dream that one day the descendants of slaves will come and sit at the table of brotherhood and sisterhood with the descendants of slave owners, and they will create a beloved community, or words to that effect. Well, that is happening. Uh, coming to the table is doing these healing, these racial healing circles with chapters all over the country. I am going to close. Um, and I close with this challenge. Uh, be a healer and a warrior for justice. 
don't succumb to a binary space where you feel you have to be one or the other. See activism as a form of social healing and healing as a form of social transformation. History is calling on us to be both these things. History has long called us to be warriors for justice. It is now calling for us to be warriors and healers in the same way Nelson Rohila Mandela was, in the same way that Mahatma Gandhi was, in the same way that the spiritual warriors of the International Indigenous Youth Council who started the actions at Standing Rock and who engaged in beautiful silent marches and prayer actions. In the same way that the youth in Ferguson and in the Black Lives Matter movement talk about the need for love and for healing. We never talked about that when I was, when I was an activist, uh, a revolutionary in the 60s and 70s. So I was really pleasantly surprised to go to Ferguson uh, during all of the demonstrations there. And, be at a demonstration where they called for love, they called for healing as well as for justice. The youth are leading our way. RJ, restorative justice, is one way to be both a warrior and a healer. There are others. Find your own way, whether it's through liberation theology, through black prophetic justice, engaged or engaged Buddhism. Last, have hope. This is the time of the victory of a US president who was a billionaire and has created a cabinet of billionaires, the 1%, the, a time of victory of a racist, Islamophobe, homophobe, misogynist, xenophobe, transphobe, and climate change denier in the White House. But let us not forget it is also a time of activism that is bubbling up with energy and power all over the likes of which I have never seen in my long life, hopefully also to be longer. <laughs> so though the poison is very much present as in nature, the antidote is close by. This is also a time of great hope. But be hope, don't just have the hope. As Brother Cornell West has said, Having hope is too abstract, too detached, too spectatorial. Instead, we must be hope, an active, an activist, a warrior, a healer, and a force for a sustainable peace as we move into the future. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Davis. So now I'd like to invite Sujatha Baliga to speak to us on the question, have you been angry long enough? Faith, forgiveness, and restorative justice. actually, with a moment of silence, 30 seconds to be exact, of silence. Um, it is something uh, Jonathan Simon, a 
dear friend and uh, colleague at Berkeley Law School actually does a whole minute. He makes his law students meditate for a minute. He calls it his mindful minute. And so I'd love for us to just take a moment, and we just heard a lot and incredible stories, and let's take a moment to uh, be in our bodies, uh, just be in silence, or if you have a practice you want to do, uh, you'll hear a bell in about 30 seconds. Thanks, everyone. Mostly I do that for myself. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you all taking the time to do that with me. So um, it is really, really good to be here uh, with all that's going on in the world and to see um, beloved faces from uh, other places in my life. So it's really great uh, uh, to be here. And um, so I say a particular thank you to the dean and to, to RPP, the Div School, um, to Andrea for all the wonderful, uh, I'm not seeing you. Oh, uh, for all the wonderful organizing uh, that was done, and, uh, and to Liz, to everyone here, thank you so much for creating this space. Um, I'm particularly grateful to Fania for going first, as she's always the sort of goddess of sharing the beauty of everything restorative justice is as a spiritual, a moral, a practical thing. I mean, she gets it all in there. It's, it's amazing. Um, and we were just recently marveling about over 10 years ago, I think 2006, uh, I sat uh, in her office and on uh, our first meeting, and, and, and our first meeting actually wasn't about um, how are we going to reduce racial and ethnic disparities, or we didn't actually go there, which is where we usually live. Uh, how are we going to get recidivism rates down by this much? Uh, how are we going to convince this district attorney to divert these cases? Uh, we actually spent that entire hour talking about our spiritual journeys uh, to where we are and what it meant for, uh, we were sitting in her law office, uh, to, to step away. I was doing death penalty appeals, you know, she was still doing civil rights litigation, and. Um, and employment discrimination cases, and we were like, how do we transition uh, out of this? And uh, shortly thereafter, she convinced me, and, and literally we prayed over my Soros Fellows application and uh, walked to the, walked to the, we like literally held it together and mailed it off together, and uh, pretty soon I was, I was working with Fania at, at Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. And so it's amazing uh, to think about it. Shortly thereafter, some point around there, Fania also reminds me, there was a walk around the lake where, where she was like, we're gonna end youth incarceration. Um, and, and I was like, I'm latching myself to this person, because uh, yeah, we're going to do that. And, and the questions were in those early conversations, um, so who did that? Who's done that? 
and who's done it from a place of uh, looking at racial and ethnic disparities and, and indigenous and folks of color really driving that. Uh, and you know, before we even knew that that was the case, these were Fania's questions, and I would go off and research them and find out actually that happened in New Zealand, right? Um, that the Maori folks were saying, hey, don't be locking up our kids at this disproportionate rate, and, uh, and it resulted in a pilot that grew, and in 1989, a nationwide act, and they effectively ended youth incarceration. Um, it doesn't mean that they ended racial and ethnic disparities. They're a restorative justice system that addresses uh, even the most serious crimes through uh, family group conferencing, a, a restorative justice model, uh, still has a disproportionate number of, of Maori youth, but at a minimum, the number of youth that are actually detained uh, for any period of time is microscopic in New Zealand. Um, it's funny, I'm going to New Zealand in a couple of weeks. They asked me to keynote a conference there. And I thought, well, what, what am I going to say? Because I usually run around and keynote things and say, so in New Zealand, this is what they do. <laughs> so working on that. Um, <laughs> I have to do a little work on that talk. Um, so just a little bit about what brought me to this work. Uh, in 1991, uh, I transferred to Harvard and Radcliffe Colleges, uh, as they were known back then, uh, because I wanted to study Sanskrit. And uh, I was also struggling with unaddressed childhood trauma um, from a decade of sexual abuse by my father. And, and my soul was really longing for something called justice uh, since he passed away when I was 16. Um, so somewhere in my first week of school, I, I, I decided that uh, Sanskrit wasn't a sufficient, sufficiently practical thing uh, for ending gendered and sexual violence, and I changed majors, and then I became a victim advocate uh, for a few years after college, and uh, both in the United States and uh, in India, working in domestic violence, sexual abuse, uh, rape crisis. And, um, and I ultimately ended up in law school. And so David Anderson Hooker, whose name has been evoked a few times tonight, um, and as I think who, who suggested both Fania and I for this talk, uh, I love the story he tells in his first week. He's a, he's a man of the cloth, but he's also an attorney. And in his first uh, week of law school, he kept talking about justice, justice. And a law professor took him aside and said, son, if you wanted to learn about justice, go to div school. <laughs> So here I am at a div school, maybe where I was always supposed to be, um, and it is really wonderful to be here, and really was wonderful to be invited here to be able to grapple with uh, the original conversation that Fania and I had um, mm -hmm. over 10 years ago. So I said somewhere that I think got published somewhere that, um, that this talk was going to be about the following things, how restorative justice makes space for a full accounting of the injustices we suffer, how our religious faiths and the secular values distilled from them can help us heal even unthinkable harms. How we can avoid cultural appropriation and its byproduct, spiritual bypass, that happens in that distillation process. And how both my journeys to healing from child sexual abuse and my journey from legal practice to restorative justice were propelled by advice I received about forgiveness from His Holiness the Dalai Lama in my early 20s and how that advice is still impacting my work and my life today. So that's a tall order for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> so I'll do my best on all those fronts. Um, so what is restorative justice? We heard beautifully from Fania and I don't want to repeat any of it. Um, Howard Zare, uh, who's one of my heart mentors in this work, has you know, created sort of some formulation of that three questions that Fania uh, 
brought up here and really just that paradigm shift. The first time I read it, I was like, oh, this, this is what, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, Howard also talks about um, a continuum of restorative practices, right? So restorative justice, uh, as Fanny said, is a way of life. It is, it's much larger than like a conflict resolution tool uh, or conflict transformation tool. Um, and, and there's a continuum of practices that sit within, uh, under this umbrella. And, um, you know, his, this continuum he talks about is from sort of the pseudo of, and non-restorative to the fully restorative. Um, and when I think about, like, what would a definition be on that fully restorative end? I've been toying around with different things, but one that comes to mind is face-to-face -face dialogue in which families and communities support those who've harmed to be directly accountable to the self-identified needs of the folks they've harmed. Um, and I'm still playing with that. I don't think that it's, it, it, it can't capture it all, in a sense. Um, but my mind likes to play with these definitions and what do things mean. And I get really excited sort of at my temple when we get into these debates about whether or not shunyata should be uh, translated as emptiness or voidness. And you know, I'll, I'll really get into that. But um, my other heart mentor in this work is uh, the former Chief Justice of the Navajo Nation, uh, Robert Yazzie. And Justice Yazzie just gets a kick out, he's an attorney, obviously, and he still gets a real kick out of this desire I have to like really pinpoint like what is it and in words. Uh, he's very clear that you can't possibly define restorative justice. Um, and in the end, I have to agree with him, uh, as with Buddhist notions of emptiness, it really is something to be experienced. And so I would strongly encourage all of you that haven't to find your way into a circle of some kind or another at some point in your lives. Um, so if we're gonna ask these questions of who was harmed and what do they need and whose obligation is it to meet those needs, we can't gloss over uh, this word harm, right? Sometimes even unthinkable harm. Another way some people start restorative justice inquiries is with simply the words, what happened? What happened? Some of you may have read an article about a case I facilitated in, in 2012. It was in uh, the New York Times Magazine titled, Can Forgiveness Play a Role in Criminal Justice? And it was about a teen dating homicide case in which a young man by the name of Connor McBride killed his fiancee, Anne Gromare. Uh, Anne's mother, Kate, has written a beautiful book about it. It's called Forgiving My Daughter's Killer. And uh, it really comes from a place of uh, their Catholic faith journey. And it's a, an incredible book. You should check it out. Um, so this, um, so, so a little caveat. So while uh, the Gromer's forgiveness was a large part of that process for them as Catholics, um, forgiveness shouldn't be a requirement of restorative justice, participation in restorative justice practices, nor is it even an expected outcome, um, but it is really lovely when it happens, and I get to witness it from time to time. Um, so a little bit about that case. After working with everyone impacted and involved <clears throat> for over six months, uh, Anne's parents, Connor's parents, Connor, the district attorney who had charged the case, uh, the defense attorney, Anne's family's priest, victim advocates, uh, and a whole lot of people in the Tallahassee community where this happened. Uh, we ended up ultimately having a five-hour circle inside Connor's jail. Uh, and that uh, jail resulted in a plea deal, thank you, um, to um, a plea deal that was designed to meet Anne's parents' needs uh, as best as can happen when something as terrible happens as the loss of your own child. 
But the process itself was also designed to meet people's needs, and particularly Anne's father's need, Andy Gromer's need to know what happened. What happened? So before asking what may be the most important question when things go terribly wrong, what happened? There are some things that restorative justice um, facilitators and people who are going to be in the circle really need to sit with. For me as a facilitator, I sort of sit with these questions. Do I have what I need to be fully present to the whole answer to that question? Is the other person ready for me to ask them? Have they received what they need to speak the whole answer, to weep the whole answer, to rage the whole answer? The best circle keepers embody love and patience and equal compassion for everyone involved until all of these questions are answered in the affirmative, whether talking to someone who caused or experienced that harm, and often people are both. It's astounding to be on the receiving end of that kind of presence. At a critical time in my own life, when I was trying to unpack painful things, I met someone who had that kind of presence, whose way of engaging with suffering is what I try to emulate on some micro-microscopic uh, measure in my own life, in my work, in my parenting, in my friendships. I don't do a great job in my marriage with it, but... <laughs> um, so when I was 24 years old, I mailed in my law school applications and moved to India to help my then boyfriend who was working with trafficked women and children in Mumbai. And uh, I was failing miserably, miserably at being of any assistance to him whatsoever. I had a full-blown breakdown and left uh, to go backpacking to either find myself or end my own life. And uh, my journeys took me to Dharamshala. And there, I befriended a Tibetan family. Um, and our conversations were, they found me curious on a number of levels, because here I was this Indian-American person with American accent, and the kurti, and the jeans, and the backpack, and the, and I didn't want to make them prisoners of Shangri-La, right? I really wanted to actually know, like, how did you escape? And how did you make decisions about which family? And they hadn't met somebody who was like, trauma, 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 trauma. Let's talk about some trauma. Um, <laughs> And so at some point they asked me like, so what are you so angry about? And so I shared with them my own history and they were horrified. And they said, you know, you should ask the Dalai Lama about this. And I said, you know, how does one do that? So he's busy, <laughs> like it's, I don't know, like how do you get on his calendar, right? And they were, so they were like, well, write to him. So I tore this page out of my like ratty travel journal and I wrote a note. And it said a couple things about my work. It said nothing about my own personal history. I was too ashamed to name it at the time. But I did say, anger is killing me, but it motivates my work. How do you work on behalf of abused and oppressed people without anger as the motivating force? So a week, they told me to come back a week later, and I did, and I got ushered all the way into His Holiness's private secretary's desk. He said, His Holiness was really moved by your note, and he'd like to meet you next Wednesday. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so I changed my plane ticket, and a week later, I was sitting with the Dalai Lama. Um, and that hour remains to this day the most important hour of my life. So when I shared um, with him that my father had sexually abused me, he leaned in. He leaned in. It's a whole other meaning of the word lean in, right? Like, this is leaning in. This is leaning in, in a way, from the heart. 
I literally felt compassion as if it were a physical thing coming out of his body. When he held my hands when I cried. And when I was telling him about what happened, he said, your own father? Your own father? I also confessed to him my conflicted feelings about my father's death, about how having, uh, despite having prayed for his death from time to time. I also tried to save him. When he died, I did CPR on him when he died, when I was 16 years old. And I didn't talk about that. You know, therapists had pathologized it. They said it was Stockholm Syndrome. Or one therapist said it was, a, it was an indication uh, that I, had, um, I hadn't assimilated properly. I was over-identified with my Indian culture uh, that, I would, that I would try to, um, you know, uh, protect my father in some way. So fascinating. Things that I heard. Dalai Lama didn't say any of that stuff. <laughs> um, um, and so in the course of our conversation, I wanted specific advice on how to forgive my father. He was gone, and I was the one with the blinding migraines and the nervous breakdowns and the disastrous relationships and the, oh my God, how am I going to go to law school when I'm this hot mess of a human being? And, uh, you know, I loved hearing his stories about his own journeys with forgiveness, but I also, you know, that mind of mine that needs it really narrow. It's like, no, I need really specific, like, what's the one, two, three of how to forgive my father? Um, and I kept pressing him, and, and he said, um, and he finally paused, and he said, do you feel you've been angry long enough? Do you feel you've been angry long enough? He wasn't going to give me that. And so we sat together in silence, and I surveyed anger's uh, diminishing returns on my life, which there were many <laughs> at that point. And I said, yes, you know, yes. So it's funny, when other, I've heard other people tell this story, um, other Buddhist teachers in particular, and they really misunderstand what His Holiness said. It was actually a literal question. Do you feel you have been angry long enough? It wasn't His Holiness sort of saying, okay, little girl, are you all done with your anger now? Like, that is not what he was saying. He wanted to know if I was done um, from my side, from me. So, um, so when I convinced him that I was, um, he did give me some advice. He gave me two pieces of advice. The first was that he said, my mind was very bright, but it was completely out of my own control, which remains true to this day. And, uh, and he, said, um, he said, you know, this level of rage, which I had expressed several times in my meeting with him. I cursed, I yelled, I cried while I was talking with him about all the things I had seen and, and done and experienced. And he said, this is, uh, this is you out of your mind out of your own control. So he said, you need to meditate. That's the first step. So once you've done that for a while, you're going to want to think about uh, aligning yourself with your enemies. That's a piece of advice, too. Um, he said, um, uh, without excusing their behavior, you want to consider their positions and their needs. And really, it's encouraged me to maybe consider their humanity. Well, I was about to start law school to be a prosecutor to lock those <laughs> up, right? And so I just, I was, I was back in rage. I was like, what? Align my, who? I'm going to law school. And I said, I'm not aligning myself with anybody. So he starts laughing, right? <laughs> Pats my knee. He says, okay, okay, you just meditate. You, you just meditate. <laughs> so a few weeks later, um, a few months later, I, I took my first of many Vipassana courses, uh, something that I committed myself through, to uh, to at least once a year go to do a 10-day sit um, from that point on. And at the end of the first one, during Metta Bhavana practice, uh, loving kindness, I had a complete experience of forgiving my father. And it's interesting, in the weeks and months that followed, 
I noticed, oh, no more migraines, no more stomach problems. My disaster relationship ultimately resolved in a positive way that I think well, hopefully we separated in a way that was um, good for both of us. And um, I also quickly discovered during my first week of law school, which came shortly thereafter, that I couldn't be a prosecutor. And so I went to my criminal law professor, so I'm going to drop out now. Um, thank you for the public service fellowship. I'm gone. <laughs> And he said, hold up, you know, why don't you consider being a defense attorney? I was like, no chance. I still had this feeling that there were these bad guys and good guys, right? But, um, um, but he said, well, why don't you defend women who kill their abusers? I was like, oh, that's genius. That's what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> Nobody told me that that's not a job. <laughs> I mean, like, I got to work on a few of those cases, but basically you had to go be a public defender where I really learned that there are no good guys and bad guys, right? And uh, I got to actually follow His Holiness' second piece of advice uh, in a very powerful way. So, but the whole time I was a victim advocate and I was restored and I was a, a public defender and I did death penalty appeals, appeals ultimately when I met Fania, that work was killing me, surely. Um, I, I never felt right. I never, I felt like I was constantly trying to figure out like, how to be just on this side of the line, right? Um, and I was getting better at it, but ultimately, you know, I'd been reading and going to a million restorative justice trainings during all of these years, and I was really inspired by the Tibetan system of justice prior to Chinese occupation and its lessons um, for how we might be better uh, in the law. And uh, my friend Susan Marcus, who's a longtime death penalty lawyer, kept saying, you need to learn about restorative justice. I finally listened to her and I read and I went to trainings and I was like, this, this is the answer. Um, so my work today is in helping communities adopt restorative justice in lieu of criminalization, um, but I always keep one case alive, and maybe um, why I do this, particularly in sexual harm cases, uh, is that I get a sort of vicarious glimmer of what would have happened if this had been available to me. Right? If my father were alive today, I would want to ask him a million questions, but mostly I'd want to know what happened. It's the same question that Andy Gromer wanted to know of Connor. What happened? Both about that night, but about Connor. You know, we knew you, Connor. What happened? What happened to you? It's what we're all scanning the papers for right now, isn't it? We want to know more about Stephen Paddock, right? We want to know what happened. His brother wants to know what happened. Are you going to do an autopsy? Does he have a brain tumor? What happened? And some of us, um, will want to simply make people evil. I meet folks all the time who try to convince me that there is this thing evil, and I, I feel fairly sure that there isn't. Um, I don't think it's that simple. What I know uh, from every death penalty case I worked on is that every one of my clients had a backstory, not to excuse what they did, but there was always something, whether it's transgenerational trauma born of genocide, or a head injury, or sexual abuse, or all of the, all of the above. Um, and as activists, really, um, we want to do that too. We want to make the prosecutors and the prison guards and everybody the enemy. Um, and I really do think it's killing us. Um, and uh, it, it really, I think, is a false view. I have a brilliant friend, Sonia Shah, who does restorative justice circles for prison guards. What is that, really? And I've brought prosecutors into circles at Archway. Um, from, t uh, from Nashville, we brought the uh, prosecutors and the police uh, from Nashville to Oakland to sit in circle with the Arjoa youth. Amazing, amazing experiences. And we had the young people there lead the circle. And uh, one young woman decided that the thing we were going to do in circle 
because there were so many of us, we're going to keep it short. So she said, give us a one-word poem about your race. That is what she asked. So love this. The district attorney is sitting next to the judge who also came, and she's a very dark-skinned African-American woman, and he is a white man. And when it was his turn, he said something to the effect of, we've always had a leg up. And I literally felt the kids like melt, and they're like, oh, I can talk to this guy. And then the judge said, blacker the berry, sweeter the juice. <laughs> so, <laughs> phenomenal. Um, so, so there are always causes and conditions that give rise to every circumstance that we're in. Um, so if my father were alive today, I'd really want to ask him, what happened to you, Anu? What happened that you did this to me, to us, to our family? Fanya once said when I was talking about uh, the experience that I had in wanting to save my father, she said this word, Ubuntu. Ubuntu, it's a Bantu word that means uh, I am because we are, or a person is a person through other people. And, um, you know, I really think about that a lot in relationship to that, uh, to my childhood and my father. I used to pray that he would stop doing what he was doing to both of us. So in healing spaces, you often hear this adage, right? Like the only way out is through. And so personally, I'm so grateful to the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, uh, because they offer uh, tools for getting all the way through to the cessation of suffering, right? The kindness of my gurus and guiding me in that way. Um, and again, I, I really do make a commitment. Uh, next week, I'm leaving for a 10-day sit. Uh, I, I continue to do this, even though I have a kid, even though I'm running of this and of that and the other. It's really important to keep these things alive for me. Um, and my work path, restorative justice, also offers a path for getting all the way through, and it acknowledges that the only way out is through. Um, but RJ can't do that if we fall prey to the dangers of American secularism and, conversely, uh, appropriation and spiritual bypass. So, in packaging the restorative, in packaging restorative justice as secular, a despiritualized tool to be used for the 45-minute class period or the judge's calendar, ceremony is replaced with protocol, prayer with preambles, and the magic really is lost. Um, at the same time, passing a feather around uh, or starting with a little oming in a cursory way um, potentially disrespects sacred practices and uh, having lived in both Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Berkeley, California, I get to see my fair share of that. Um, there's also a risk that we'll just adopt the groovy parts, right? The we are all one parts. Um, the we are all one spiritual bypass absolves spiritual healing of its justice obligations, the ending injustice part, right? The Reverend Doc Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't do that. Gandhiji didn't do that, right? Archbishop, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu does not do that. And my, in my personal experience, His Holiness the Dalai Lama didn't do that. Do you feel you have been angry long enough? Your own father, right? He doesn't shy away from those things, and none of us should. What a gift those words are, really. And what a gift it would be if we gave ourselves time for, those, for that kind of reflection. So the challenge for the restorative justice facilitator then is to leave intact the values and practices that make restorative justice true to its sacred nature while simultaneously avoiding appropriation of other spiritual and indigenous wisdom. This balance can be best found by 
allowing the faith journeys of the participants to guide in the planning of the restorative justice process. That's what I did with the Gromeras and the McBrides, and it was an awfully Catholic thing that we ended up doing in that jail cell. And you know, it wasn't about me, so I can step back and allow that to be what it was. Um, so the process should always and only reflect the religious and spiritual experiences of those who are coming together uh, to transform the harm. This can also be better achieved when we work within our own faith and cultural communities, right? We always say restorative justice facilitators should reflect the folks that they're working with, right? I found myself at my personal restorative justice best when I was in India two years ago training a group of organizations who work to end child sexual abuse. And when I was keeping a circle in my own, at, back at home, for South Asian American child sexual abuse survivors. It was incredible. Um, so, um, a couple more minutes? Sure. Yeah, okay. So, how do we do this in America? We have to remember that it takes more time to do things in a sacred way. Time is a great challenge to our work. Uh, I, I recently read that there's a Native American elder who says, who calls the wristwatch the white man's handcuff. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I want my work to create the causes and conditions that, that, that results in the end of youth incarceration, inspired by Fania's words when we walked around that lake so many years ago, um, to end our racialized mass criminalization and end child sexual abuse here and in India and all our diasporic communities. So I might not see that all in my lifetime. <laughs> but I'm emboldened by the long view that uh, Justice Yazzie once shared with me, I once asked him how he maintains his optimism in the face of all that his people have lost and suffered. And he said to me, I am optimistic about what it's going to look like in a thousand years. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Anyone who knows him, who's met with him or seen him move, uh, knows that despite this long, long view, he works with more urgency and intensity than anyone I have ever met. Today, my team at Impact Justice is working with similar urgency to uh, help 10 cities replace youth criminalization with restorative justice. Um, the first study of our work shows a 44% reduction in youth reoffending in Oakland and 91% satisfaction rate for participating victims, including felonies such as burglary, robbery, sexual assault, and teen dating violence. And these programs actually prevent youth from ever even being charged with a crime. So this is why we say pre-charge, pre-booking, like you don't actually even have to hit the courthouse doors to do this kind of work. It actually works better when you don't, right? We can do this instead of criminalizing our youth. But that work does take time. And if we shortchange the practices and even the implementation, we won't see these kinds of results. It takes time to be sacred. So when I'm overwhelmed by the state of racialized mass criminalization in the US and the global pandemic of child sexual abuse, by all that's happened and is happening in our world, it's important to remember that restorative justice moves at the speed of trust and that it moves like water to places that are open to it and that that is the power to carve canyons to literally change the world. Um, I, I just texted Kate Gromer a second ago, and I said, do I have permission to tell the stories? I want to close with this really brief story, and it, it's astounding. So Connor, uh, after the circle, and we did this incredible five-hour circle, that the first hour and a half was simply the Gromer sharing who was, who was Anne from her birth on, 
right? And then uh, we ultimately, and who, who it was that they'd lost. And then we spent a lot of time with Connor explaining what it is that had happened. And it was a brutal, brutal situation that resulted in her death. And in the end, there was, the, the Gomeras had felt that they had forgiven him before even starting that process. Um, and the facts that came out that day did test their forgiveness. Um, and afterwards, uh, at the end of the circle, they were able to embrace this young man. They hugged him at the end of the circle after hearing all the details of how he took their daughter's death, took their daughter's life. Um, after that, a few, I think a few months later, Connor converted to Catholicism um, because he was so moved uh, by their capacity to forgive. And then a few months after that, uh, Andy became a deacon in the Catholic Church. And then he was placed in Connor's jail to offer prison ministry. And Andy would offer the sacrament to Connor. I'm not even Catholic, I don't believe any of this, and see, I can't even tell the story about crying. Um, and then ultimately, uh, so it got found out this happening or something happened around the prison rules are such that you both can't be a volunteer and be a visitor. And so Andy had to give up his prison ministry because he chose to continue to be a visitor to Connor. So I, I, I just share this in closing to show what it is that is possible, right? And that these individual stories really we have great hopes for systemic change, right? I have great hopes that by proving and by having the data uh, that we will be able to change the world. It's also my hope that if, um, you know, the system as it is isn't ready to dismantle itself because it will take the work of prosecutors and police and, and, and systems partners to really say we don't need to be doing things and we mustn't, if we were truly interested in public safety, we're truly interested in the, the needs and desires of victims, we mustn't do it the way we're doing it now. Um, and at, at a minimum, we will leave some cave paintings uh, with our data and our stories um, so that uh, those who come after us will be able to take us all the way across the finish line. So thank you all very much. So, we're most honored and grateful um, to have been the recipients of these gems of wisdom and gems of the heart from really your life experiences and your amazing, amazing work. And we really do thank you for everything that you're doing to blaze these trails for us because as we all know, our world needs it. If I may ask, since I give myself the opportunity, um, you know, when you mentioned paradigmatic assumptions you know, that undergird our current system and the different worldview of restorative justice, I often think that one of the assumptions in our current system, and one hears it a lot, is a lack of faith in human transformation, the ability of people to transform. Mm -hmm the belief that there is definitely a good guy and a bad guy. <laughs> and, um, and so, and I think part of that is, you know, sometimes it has to do with assumptions and beliefs, and sometimes it has to do with being in life experiences or not being in life experiences where you have the opportunity to actually witness that and actually experience that yourself. So if you haven't been in situations that have allowed you that kind of transformation or to see it, you know, you can't fathom it. So 
I'm wondering about, it seems to me that you all have been exposed to a lot of transformation of kinds that many of us, and I can certainly speak for myself, you know, haven't necessarily. So are there some insights into the dynamics of change or how you see this question about the good guy and the bad guy? Because that seems to be um, fueling so much of the polarization mm. in our world, having that kind of assumption. Um, yeah. Um, I think restorative justice um, challenges these dualistic either-or, good-bad, guilty-innocent, right-wrong formulations that we are socialized into, um, and especially as lawyers, you know, we're we're <laughs> those dualistic um, thinkers and. Uh, people by par excellence. Um, and of course that runs counter to the whole notion of our reality as a continuous one. The whole notion that I am because we are. The whole notion that we all participate in this web of oneness. And in many respects it may have been the <coughs> Uh, Renaissance, the, the, uh, the scientific revolution, you know, the Cartesian revolution. Uh, I think, therefore, I am um, versus I am because we are. I am who I am because of my relationships. One is unitive, uh, the other is more sort of atomistic. So I think since the 1500s, um, we have entered into what Native American uh, prophets have called a dark sun of human consciousness. Um, and in many ways it was started with the papal doctrine of, of uh, discovery, uh, giving uh, Spain and Portugal the right to go into every pagan territory uh, and enslave the people and take their lands um, and we're still sort of, that is the dark sun of human consciousness. The good news is that these prophets say that after 500 years, which we are about there now, mm -hmm. that we will enter into a bright sun of human consciousness mm -hmm. where the knowledge of the earth, the ancient knowledge of the earth will re-emerge and the eagle will fly with the condor, the south, with the global south and the north. Um, and we are seeing a renaissance of um, indigenous wisdom in many different fields, uh, including in the field of justice. Mm. I think restorative justice is an example of that. So, so we're, yeah. I think you said something earlier about how uh, we are being asked to uh, Reimagine who we are as human beings. We are being asked to, you might say, reinvent what it means to be human, to let go of those ways of being present to one another that bring discord and devastation, um, and to embrace uh, ways of being present to one another that bring about healing. And I think restorative justice is, is a tool that helps us to get there because of its rootedness in indigenous um, teachings um, and insights. 
And just a little bit on that, on that um, question of cultural appropriation. Uh, I, I say, you know, a, lo a lot of the times, I say, white people have indigenous roots too, <laughs> you know. Um, the, the, the Celtic, how many people have, have researched their own indigenous ceremonies and, and herbs and songs? Great, yeah. And I'd love to see millions more um, because I think that's part of the path to sustainable peace. Um, it's not just people of color that have indigenous right. origins. And, yeah. Maybe I would just add to that just the tiniest bit that um, it, it's also individual work of um, unconditional love for oneself. I think that we don't want to believe that we don't want to believe that we're ever bad guys, and so it's been really uh, liberating for me to see uh, when I am. Um, and if I can find a way to love myself unconditionally through that in the same way that I could love my clients, then I am, uh, you know, we don't have to go find some transformation story outside ourselves, right? You have them yourself within you. Um, so that's always, uh, um, that's always a good place to start. Thank and what you said earlier, what happened to you? You know, what happened to Stephen Paddock? Um, harmed people go on to harm other people if they are not healed. And there's no bright line, and restorative justice is, it gives us a gift in that way too. We see that there's no bright line separating person causing harm from person harmed. Some might say victim, offender. We don't use that language, Sujata and I don't typically. There is no bright line. We know if you scratch just a little bit, just beneath the surface, you will find that this person who caused harm experienced harm that the person we call the offender is a victim. Um, and that, again, the unitive way of experiencing reality. There, there's just not all bad, all good, all right, all wrong. Mm. Um, so I love restorative justice because it challenges these splitting and fracturing ways of being present, of viewing our reality. And that ultimately is what leads to all of the devastation that we see all around us and the violence. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think there's one all the way over there. Does it, are we taking questions? Yes or no? Yes, okay. we would okay. like to. Um. Um, I have two questions. First, I cannot help but notice that the whole panel was women in a profession which during our lifetime, Sandra Day O'Connor um, was offered a job as a secretary when she graduated from Stanford. Is restorative justice disproportionately members of the alleged gentler sex? <laughs> um, and my second question is, are there any people that aren't deserving of restorative justice? The child who kills kittens and puppies and grows up to be a serial murderer. Mm -hmm. Do we give him restore or her restorative justice, or do we throw away the key and keep him in jail? So, you know, I think that there's a, in the non-profit world generally, I tend to see more women than men across all sectors, whether it be, you know, at least in the criminal justice reform world, in the school world, um, other than in senior leadership, where there's a lot of men. <laughs> so we have these problems that we need to be working on in all of our fields. Um, I do not believe that there is any out or a way that we can 
throw people to, to, to solve crime. There is no a way. There is nowhere to lock anyone up uh, where we will solve it. I personally am an abolitionist. That doesn't mean that, I don't believe that we have any purpose for punitive confinement. Let me be clear. There may be times when people need um, to be protected from themselves and, uh, and, and, and others need to be protected from them. Um, but, but things like solitary confinement, throw away, lock away, throw them up, they're, they're words that just make no sense. We, what we've seen is that it just doesn't work. Uh, and it's a slippery slope where we end up um, locking up a whole lot of people. So that's sort of where I sit with it. Um, youth incarceration is criminogenic. It increases the chances that you will um, to cause, cause more harm when you're released. Uh, it probably would be better if we just let all children get away with everything. I'm not kidding. Like this, there are studies that show that if we just let kids get away with it, that uh, they would be less likely to commit future crimes than if we incarcerate them. Woo! So um, I'm hoping that restorative, my data on restorative justice isn't just because it's not incarceration, but that there's actually an additional um, benefit to restorative justice. Um, and then I think in addition to that, um, that kid who's hurting puppies, it just, you brought an image to my mind and it was, it, the, the squirrel was already dead when I did it, but I chopped off the tail of a squirrel when I was a child. I wanted to take it home because I wanted something soft to touch. So I just, you know, um, it's, uh, who knows who these kids are and why they're doing what they're doing? Uh, who knows who these adults are and why they're doing what they're doing? Uh, I would like to know. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that's that bottomless well of compassion um, can be challenging. Yes. Not saying it's easy. <laughs> This, yeah. yeah, and and I also wanted to say that restorative justice is not a panacea. I don't want us anyone to leave thinking that. Um, it, we don't do restorative justice in schools, and we typically don't. I don't we don't do it in the ju justice system either. If the person causing harm refuses to take responsibility, yeah. always, we just can't do restorative justice for those persons. We can't do restorative justice for a person who's really innocent, you know. They need a trial so they can prove their innocence. That's exactly right. Um, we, restorative justice doesn't always work when people have very serious mental health problems that require a, a clinical intervention. Um, so even though I think restorative justice can transform the way we think about and do justice, um, it is not a panacea that mm -hmm. can be used all the time in all of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. and especially when a person causing harm refuses to take responsibility, why would we bring a person who's been harmed into a circle with this person only to be harmed again by That's them? right. No. That's we, right. Yeah. That's so, right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, it's, there are times when it's just not appropriate. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I, I work with adults, too. I like to say I work with children of all ages. Um, and, I, I, and I once worked with a, with a boy who had killed some kittens, and the horrors of his life, um, I hope none of you have had to experience. And what was remarkable was the, the, um, 
inpatient unit where I was working was one of the most compassionate places I could imagine. And within about a week of that child being treated like a human being, like a child, mm. um, I remember reading his start and thinking, wow, this is really scary. And then I met him, like, he's not scary, he's a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after a week, he looked like a normal kid. He looked pretty psychotic when he arrived. I mm. can't remember mm. whether we mm. gave him meds or not. He did get removed from the family that was abusing him. Um, the teachers didn't understand him either. He was labeled as a bad kid. Um, but I, I think one of the things I was struck by, I thought I was listening to someone, to a group of people talking about the work that I do. <laughs> um, it's such a process. It is such a human process that takes deep commitment, deep compassion, collaboration with others when your compassion is waning, mm -hmm. when the horror that you've just heard about is just too much to bear. Because some of these things can't be borne by just one person, that's why you need the circle. Yes. Um, and I was also struck by, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the psychoanalytic literature about, say, how to deal with bullies, and that you don't deal with bullies by punishing the bully. I mean, duh. You deal with the environment. What is the system that created the bully and the bystander, whether the bystander is victimized or vicariously enjoying being empowered or is just blank? And it, it, so much of the psychoanalytic literature these days is about being with, being fully present. Although not all the psychoanalysts agree that Buddhism has any relevance to anything, it's all, you know, <laughs> I do think that maybe we are getting closer to a time where there's more of a realization that to be human, you actually have to be human and with other humans. <laughs> um, but I, I, how, do you, how do you keep going in the face of the just the insanity of the current political headlines. Yeah, That's something I should I'm every, every, um, every Friday night and every Sunday morning, every Friday night and every Sunday morning and every Monday night, I am at the Gyoto Foundation. Every week that I am in Oakland or Berkeley, I am, that is, I, am in, I go to Richmond, I go to my temple, and uh, I don't ever miss it. Period. Um, okay, one time I missed because my son's soccer game was at the same time. But, you know, that's, it's, um, it is, uh, it, I, there's literally no way I could do what I do. And I wake up every morning and I sit. I do my practice every day. I do practice in the morning. I do practice in the night. Um, I've forgotten to do one of them, and I just went into your library, and I did it before I started, right? So um, this, is a, this is a requirement for me to do the work. Uh, I also... Um, yeah, I go on retreat. I, um, I surround myself with, with really hopeful people. Uh, that is one of the things that I have. I have people in my life who have a lot of needs, and then I have a handful of folks who are just super uh, positive. <laughs> my best friend is really, uh, she lives in New York. I talk to her as often as possible because she's just a complete light at all times. And so I keep myself in contact with, with Moitri because she's a light. So that's, that's another part of how I, I do it. Um, you have to fill the well. You can only give as much as you have yourself to give, so. My answer would be very, very similar. Um, I don't think I'm as disciplined as Sujata is about doing her morning and afternoon practice. Oh, 
I said, I don't think I'm as disciplined as Sujatha is about doing her morning and afternoon practice rhythmically, but I aspire toward that. Um, I also um, find that for me, self-care needs to involve movement. I'm just, um, I, the stillness is very, very important, but the stillness, stillness through movement, through qigong or dance, um, also balances me. And um, just seeing how much goodness there is, you know, in all of your faces, and and seeing the, you know, after the inauguration of Trump, the largest demonstration demonstration in international history occurred with the Women's March, with millions of people, and you know, the March on Washington in 1963. J. Philip Randolph and others organized that for years. And there were 250,000, it was an historic march that changed history. This march, it just kind of bubbled up. And it started when a woman after Trump won said, we need to march on Washington. And she woke up the next morning and there were 20,000 people saying, yes, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it happened. Of course, there, there was some intervention by women of color um, to ensure that this was an inclusive march, uh, to ensure that there was not a narrow feminism, um, but more of an intersectional feminism, uh, that saw as women's issues mass incarceration, that saw as women's issues water, and whether in Palestine or in Detroit, that saw as women's issues uh, environmental catastrophe and climate. That, so that was kind of the first time historically where I went to a women's march where uh, the message was so thoroughgoingly and 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 uh, and uh, profoundly intersectional. But it, that's all of that is to say that that gives me hope. I mean, we have had more demonstrations just in the last seven or eight months of the Trump administration, probably than I've seen in my entire lifetime. In some ways, <laughs> you know, there was a demonstration even in space. Of course, the scientists demonstrated on, but for the first time, they demonstrated in space. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so th I think that, that also gives me hope. I, I, I'd like to offer a little, I'd like to offer a little restorative justice, justice here to anger. Um, I think anger, I, I part ways with you about the negative picture of anger and to be very brief about it. Anger can be entirely destructive, but it also, there have been a lot of studies and they are recorded in full in a book called Emotions in Conflict by a psychologist called Erin Halprin to show that anger is expressed when you can winnow it out from other emotions by people who have hope for change. Mm -hmm. And um, I think anger can be serve many positive functions. So that's one thing. And the other point I'd like to make is a little more complicated. Um, my mother was uh, an incredible um, verbal abuser of me throughout my life, or throughout her life, and until she died. And um, we were, now I would love to understand her fully,
but I grew to understand her quite well, and I am truly, most all the time, free of any anger at her in a negative way. I don't even have any kind of anger at her anymore. Um, but I do not forgive her because I never, what the first speaker said in a comment, got to the, she never got to the place of actually apologizing, mm -hmm. getting into a circle, so to speak, with me. So um, I am free. I understand as much as I can without having talked to her. Um, and, and I'm grateful for all the transformation I've been able to go through. But it's not forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a terribly important point that is not made. People ask, people speak about, advocate forgiveness without mentioning the absolute necessity, it seems to me, of the perpetrator to enter, who have entered the circle mm -hmm. and be willing to acknowledge and apologize and so on. Thank you. So, thank you so, so thank you so much for, um, I'm live yet, there we go. Thank you so much for both of those things. And so I bit off way too much for the amount of time I had and I think that I, um, so I'm gonna disagree with the fact that, you, that I'm gonna agree with your disagreeing with me. How's that? <laughs> so, and had I more time, I would have certainly spent uh, saying anger gets a bad rap, you know, and even His Holiness is very clear about different types of anger that we experience and the value of anger. And I just remember one of the most important parts of reading The Courage to Heal um, and, and seeing the anger as the backbone of healing. And I was like, well, I'm allowed to be angry, right? So I think that it's really important and that there are things, there are injustices about which anger is a completely natural response. It is self-protective. There are many good things about it. Um, I think in, in, in thinking about forgiveness for myself, uh, that it is an individualized path to forgiveness, right? And that I feel that ev almost everything that's been written about forgiveness is prescriptive and says it's the right answer. And so I just got a fellowship to work on a book and I'm so excited about it because I'm gonna definitively be saying that is not the case, right? That uh, forgiveness is, is something that we grapple with, that it's good for some folks, that other people say they didn't need to forgive and we shouldn't pathologize them as not fully healed. And, and, and again, it's why I wanna really reiterate that in particular, in, in, in spaces of restorative justice, um, that it is never a prerequisite for participation or an expected outcome. Um, it doesn't even mean the same thing to most people, right? And so, of course, I'm spending time trying to come up with like a really precise definition and it's not working out very well, but uh, I just wanna really thank you for those comments. Um, so thank you so much. And thank you for um, sharing so openly and being so vulnerable. Yeah. It's kind of the kind of thing that happens in circle, but doesn't usually happen in audiences, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, we have we got we got a cue here. Let me go over here first. Okay. Um, thanks to both of you. Those were uh, really memorable and and compelling um, talks and. Um, I think some transformation happened in here um, during them. Here's my question, and it keys off what, what was said and also a comment you made, um, Dr. Davis, that in the United States right now, given what we've seen over the last year, um, do you think this country is in a place to engage with respect to race in a restorative justice process 
when, for example, the faces of the men in Charlottesville um, showed, betrayed no evidence of accountability or responsibility. They think they're victims and they're aggrieved and they don't understand any of the pieces that have created the structures in the United States that exist. Um, and and we've, we've tried over the last year or so to understand sort of the pain of different groups of people, many of whom voted for Donald Trump, but the level of nuance and the depth of self-awareness necessary for this work seems yeah. utterly at odds mm -hmm with the parts of the United States that would need to engage in it. I mean, I, I really believe in local and, and cause that's, you know, in, in actual place means everything in this country yes. for good or for bad. Your zip code determines your life trajectory. And so is it really something that can happen on a national level given that we're, we're like a, as a country, we're like barely 10 or 11 years old. I mean, we just sort of careen <laughs> from one ridiculous yeah. thing to another um, in ways where this does not seem like it's well suited to this culture. Mm -hmm. I can see it happening in almost any other culture <laughs> except this one. Oh. We're exceptional in, in our lack of <laughs> self-awareness and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And restorative justice isn't for everybody. Um, when we were doing work in schools, some of the um, teachers and counselors and other staff didn't want to have anything to do with it, wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. There were others who were kind of sitting on the fence. But then there were some who were very passionate and, and becoming more and more skillful in doing the work. And so when their classrooms <laughs> became more peaceful, and when their students um, started to thrive, um, the ones who were sitting on the fence saw it and said, oh, maybe I should try some of that. Right. And um, they're always going to be the, the, the resistors. But if those who are passionate about it uh, do it, um, it doesn't take everybody. You know? um, what is the Margaret Mead saying? That it only takes a few. Um, and yeah, I think we really need to talk about working on local levels. Uh, there are white people who are doing um, whiteness or white privilege trainings like never before now. Um, after Donald Trump was elected, this organization called Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, just mushroomed. There are now about 200 chapters in the country and their whole mission is to of course show up for racial justice and do the internal work that's needed. Now we talked earlier about how a person causing harm isn't ready to come into a circle uh, into an encounter with the person that they have harmed whether we're talking about historic harm or uh, or present-day harm 
So white persons get to do their own work. And we are developing restorative justice trainings for white people to do that. We found that in the racial justice, um, whiteness trainings that happen, there is this oppositional, sort of hostile approach, which we carry over from our oppositional approaches as social justice activists. There's no, you know, in many of us, and I, I, I'm one of the first, I didn't have a healing bone in my body for a long time. I was angry, you know, angry at white people, angry at capitalists, uh, angry at, at, at uh, male chauvinists. Um, and so, you know, when this anger happens, and when white people are being trained and they, they become defensive, they shut down, and they're not able to really uh, confront their own internal white privilege, and things go south. Uh, so what we're doing is we're developing whiteness trainings that can occur in more safe circle spaces and affinity spaces. I mean, if black people and people of color want to come into those circles, they're welcome. But typically, these are affinity spaces to get white people ready to come into these circles. Because if they're not ready, not only will they shut down and feel like they're being accused and, and not do their work, but people of color in the room will start to have to comfort them. You know, that's the white fragility thing. Here we go again, you know. For centuries, that's what we've been doing, taking care of white people. Um, so this kind of work, I think it's very important that we're doing these restorative justice whiteness trainings, uh, trainings to unlearn uh, white privilege and get white people ready. And it still might not be enough for a white citizens council person uh, from, from, from Charlottesville. Um, but a lot of people are beginning to do this, and it gives me hope. Um. Mm -hmm. So that was exactly what I was going to talk to you and ask you about, <laughs> and to say that Surge Boston um, is doing this work and is trying actually to bring the work of healing and ritual into the activism yes. and so yes. that it's not just social justice activism right. born out of a sense of the horrors of what has been wrought in the name of whiteness yes. but that actually there's a beginning of understanding of what people who are white gave up to become white and to become supremacist oh, and yes. part of what people gave up was a sense of our own humanity and our own relationality. And so Serge Boston is actually trying to do those practices to kind of restore the internal humanity. Um, and so, I mean, it's just what you were saying, yeah. that the ability then, the kind of movements that perhaps we can join in um, have a different quality right. than some of the um, uh, hate-oriented in a sense. I mean, some of the ways of, of creating movements which actually don't have the notion of our interconnectedness at its root. Yes. So it, it's deep. Um, I do think this notion of hurt people hurting people um, does get intertwined with uh, white supremacy, which isn't necessary. I mean, it's being hurt in the sense of having given up our humanity to be supreme, but it's learning. Do you know what I mean? It's not like a, a different, it's a different kind of trauma 
than the individual person who kills puppies, but yes. it is yes. the kind of training okay. that enables us. I mean, people have said recently, what do you suppose it took to become slave owners? Mm -hmm. What did people have to do to their own souls right. in order right. to carry that out? Mm -hmm. And then how do we begin to heal it? So I, it's just... <laughs> no, and I, I love that Serge is taking this on and realizing that white people have skin in the game too. They're not doing it for someone else. They're not saving another race, you know. And to me, I even don't think of them as allies because it's their work too. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's not like they're helping somebody else, helping themselves. And I'm so glad that Serge is, is, is taking this whole thing on. And you're so right. We know from trauma research that there's such a thing called vicarious trauma. If you cause, if you're a police officer and you cause harm to another person, you killed another person, both the survivors of the person who's killed um, or the victim of an assault is traumatized, as well as a person causing the trauma. Right, and um, the piece though of not seeing your own, um, uh, I don't know, there's just, there's a way in which it's sort of restoring your sense of your own internal goodness um, to Absolutely. give up this place about supremacy. Um, yeah, and I just, I can't help but say that Serge is really walking the path of warrior and healer. You know, as warrior, I was only interested in harming others who were harming me. As warrior and healer, we do both. And for me, that is a sustainable, that is a, a path forward to a sustainable peace. It's just a, there's one more organization called White Awake that's good for people oh, yeah. to know about. Yeah. There was like 300 people on that call, a lot of social workers and, and stuff. So it's, it's broader, it's really broad what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and it's never happened before. I mean, we had, we've always had white uh, anti-racists, uh, but this is going to another level uh, that we've not seen before. Hi, um, so I have kind of a more simple question. Uh, what characterizes a restorative justice circle and how would that be different from, per se, going to a yoga class with a group of people? You know, there are many, many different kinds of circles. <laughs> um, and so uh, lots of different indigenous uh, traditions um, have different ways of doing circle, and then there are ways in which we sort of secularized them, and many of us learned from someone named Kay Pranis, and she learned from um, uh, people of the Yukon, the Tashi Tlegat people of the Yukon, and um, and then sort of helped us find a way to, to create uh, values for, for that group, and there's an opening uh, that's a ceremony of some kind, and there's, um, there's a center. Uh, we create a set of shared values, and there's a talking piece. It goes in one direction. Uh, each person holding it has the opportunity to speak from the heart or to pass. Uh, everyone else is listening uh, as it goes around. Um, sometimes it goes around two, three, four times on a single on a single question, right? Um, sometimes it involves moving towards some resolution of something. Sometimes we're just talking um, about things, and the and the resolution and the healing is coming through that. It's it's not as directed. And then um, there's a closing. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's a very thumbnail sketch of the thing. Uh, and again, it's incredibly different for different 
communities and different uh, indigenous peoples. And um, I don't want to grossly oversimplify, but I'm noticing we're quite over time. And so I just want to uh, keep it to that. But I would, I would suggest reading Kate Prentice's Little Book of Circle Processes and also other kinds of books on, um, on circle uh, and, and learning just different uh, uh, books on Navajo peacemaking, things of that nature. Um, I would definitely say uh, Life Comes From It is an article that was written by uh, Justice Yazi about sort of Navajo worldview, and I think that there's a lot that he speaks about in the sacred circle in there, so, yeah. We you need the mic. Um, could someone pass the mic, please? I'm sorry, I have the mic. If I can really quickly oh. ask a question. Actually, if you'd oh. ask after, please, because we just called on her. Thank you. If you could pass the mic, please. Oh, Is there one closer to her? Oh, they can, she can. Yes, they'll pass it. Peace Corps. Yes. Huh. Okay. One, two, three. Three. Okay. Um, so we had, um, my husband was in Peace Corps uh, for uh, <coughs> years. In, um, Is it my working? I don't know if it's working. Okay. Is it on? He was in a Peace Corps in Uzbekistan for two years um, from Michigan, Midwest, and he told me a lot of um, community, school, community, and society, you know, stories when he was there and how they resolve conflict. Mm. And in Central Asia, you know, it's a very special place, and it's kind of, you know, they have people from uh, Xinjiang in, in um, Uzbekistan, so that's part of China, and they have Turkish roots, and then they have also uh, the Europeans there. So, so sometimes we share about how you know, different cultures resolve conflict at home, in community, and also you know, as a whole in their society. So what do you take in terms of um, cross-cultural understanding, and how do you educate people who you know, don't understand? Because if they don't understand something, they don't trust. And that kind of um, relationship, sometimes it, it really depends on trust and understanding. And sometimes, you know, like in the family education in the US, we help with the early childhood education advocate and also family advocate for cross-cultural family, like half American, half Chinese family, or half, you know, um, like half a half family. Sometimes, you know, kids like a mutt. So in, in those cross-cultural, multicultural family, if you, know, you have someone who coming from a single cultural background to counsel them, sometimes things can get worse yeah. and yeah. worse yeah. and not become worse before it becomes better by just keep getting worse and worse. That's what I have witnessed in some of the, um, the families and communities. So sometimes we, we do education on family education. So I would like to hear from each of you about that in Thank that you. thoughts. And, and even in China, there's 56 minority languages. So if you say I'm Chinese, but I'm from Hunan, China, that's also very different culture than someone from Beijing or Shanghai. And the dialect is different. So Mandarin, it's a main language, but each province has their own languages. So that's something that people need to understand more too, if you, you know, don't take the lead to study hard enough about that particular culture, you may just make assumption about you know, like all Asians look the same, but they're Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and all Chinese look the same, but they're Hunanese, Hainanese, Hainan, you know, Yunnanese, Shanghainese, Beijingese, and 
Yeah. And that's something that I think is very complicated. And I yes. would like to share that with you and everyone in the audience as we're getting to the end. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I think what you're saying um, is, is so true. Um, and just a simple case of how things can go south if as a restorative justice facilitator of a circle or other process, you do not have that sort of cultural sensitivity uh, and cultural humility. Um, uh, and one example is, actually I think Howard Zare talks about this somewhere, that they were doing uh, a circle between Palestinians and Israelis and the facilitator brought out a stone and that was the worst possible choice culturally because stones are the weapons of the Palestinians against the Israelis. Um, another example, at school, in at a school in Oakland, uh, they were doing a circle and the facilitator chose a monkey as a talking piece, the stuffed monkey. And there was a black woman in the circle who was so offended by this because of course black people uh, have been uh, made to have been compared to apes, and it's been said that we are subhuman. Um, and the, that restorative justice facilitator just didn't have a, a clue about that. The black woman expressed her discomfort. She didn't do a long dissertation about all the cultural reasons why, but she says, I'm very uncomfortable with this talking piece. And the restorative justice facilitator, had she been more culturally humble and competent, would have gotten that cue and put it down and reached for another. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then another, another example that comes to mind is, you know, with the child soldiers in Africa, I think we were talking about Mozambique. Um, the, um, I don't know what organization, what NGO it was, but they were trying to use talk, talk therapy um, with the child soldiers and they, talked and talked and talked, and it never made a difference. It was only when a ceremony was done that came out of this tribe. I think it involved, uh, sending, it involved sending the child with the clothing of the child soldier, with whatever else the child had when she was, he was killing people. Um, burning a hut while the child is inside, setting it aflame, and pulling the child out just in time. After that, the child was healed you know, from that ceremony. After, so these are the kinds of things that we as peacemakers, as, as restorative justice facilitators, need to be very skillful about. Uh, you know, True. Actually, so I must say that we do need to wind down now because our time is coming to an end. Um, I would like to just say one thing or pose one final question, which is you mentioned about um, the warrior, and I noticed that when you 
when you mentioned that we need to have the warrior and embrace that and embrace the healer as well, when you actually described what you meant by the warrior, one of the things that I really heard was seeking transformative change of systems, yes. a relentlessness yes. in seeking that change. Yes. It wasn't a warrior against a person, another human being, exactly. or a group of human beings. Yes. So that's very different. Yes. So thinking about ecosystem, we often discuss here, I know Dean Hempton and many others in religions and the practice of peace, we have to say, you know, we're giving rise to the reality that we see. And we have to look at how, how are we learning in universities? What are we doing? What are we missing? Um, because we're giving rise to many of the people who become leaders, who, who shape institutions, who shape the patterns of relationships. So do you have any kernel of advice for us? Where do you see a leverage point of transformation because we're here and we have the opportunities to do that, that could make a big difference. Well, first on the warrior, thank you for that clarification. Um, when I say, when I use the warrior term, I mean it in the sense of the warrior sage or the spiritual warrior, not the oppositional, uh, uh, militaristic, uh, hostile, uh, valence of that word. Um, and I think I use this term because to stand up against juggernauts of genocide and racism and racial terror and systems of harm, we have to be brave. You know? We have to be strong and have a lot of heart and a lot of courage. We also need to have a lot of heart and courage when it comes to dealing with our own uh, um, internal challenges. Um, so that's, so thanks, thanks for making that clarification. Kind of like the Maasai, the fierce, mighty, fabled um, Maasai warrior, their greeting is Kasserian Injera. How are the children? They're always asking about the children, the most vulnerable. <laughs> and I, I think that that's the second um, question. Um, how do you bring the warrior and the healer into the curriculum? You know? And how do you, how do you build on the removal of the Harvard family shield? You know, because it was a family shield of a slave owner and a slave trader. What more do you do? You know? What more that do you do other than renaming buildings after the slaves? You know, uh, developing curricula that tells the truth about slavery and about genocide. Um, and we just in 400 years we haven't we've never done that. In Germany, is a possible role model. They have completely overhauled their curriculum to tell the truth unflinchingly about the Holocaust. I mean, they didn't have to deal with 400 years like we do, uh, but the curriculum is really amazing. Every year, teachers have to go back to school to learn to teach it in better and better ways. The children are required to go to all of the memorials in the country, and there are thousands of them. That's the other thing that we can learn from. 
the Stoppelstein uh, stumbling stone uh, memorials that dot the landscape of all of Europe. I think there's 60,000 now in Europe uh, to remember, to commemorate those who were lost uh, to the Holocaust. Uh, there are also lots of museums. Uh, the camps uh, are now, you know, uh, monuments to, uh, to uh, healing. And so developing these kinds of curricula and doing research about, you know, this kind of, these kinds of memorialization initiatives, supporting people like uh, Brian Stevenson um, are all things that I think that uh, can be done. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I would say that the, what are the institutions uh, that uh, the Divinity School influences? Um, and I would say the religious institutions, right? And so the religious institutions uh, of this country and the world are not uh, blameless for many things. Um, I have friends who are child sexual abuse survivors uh, who are sexually abused by priests, right? Um, and uh, the statute of limitations ran on their cases and they uh, have no justice, right? Um, I have... Um, and I think about going to um, my family's homeland, Goa, and I look at uh, where the temples were raised and, and uh, cathedrals were built over where there had been temples. Um, what does it look like for us to look inside? And I don't mean to just call out the Catholic Church. Certainly, um, I'm, I'm formerly a Hindu, and certainly casteism is something um, that we need to be thinking about deeply um, in, in that, within that religion, right? No religion is blameless. No, no institution doesn't uh, produce harm. Um, and so, um, so what does it look like for us, uh, even within sort of my own, uh, my own uh, temples now? Like, are we being welcoming? Um, why, why, is, why, why is American Buddhism uh, look so white, uh, you know? And uh, what can we do about that? Um, so, um, are we being sufficiently welcoming to people of color, right? So these are some of the things that I would really strongly suggest. What are the institutions that we influence and how can we bring both a curious, a, a curious heart, really, to these things so that we are offering ourselves and our institutions an unconditional love. Like, we, I really, you know, I really dig me some Jesus, right? And some of the things that have flown, uh, um, that, that have flowed from um, those teachings that have resulted then in quite the opposite of what he said, uh, really need to be uh, done in, in honor of his teachings, right? And things of that nature. So that's really my strong suggestion on that front. Thank you so much. So, Everyone has just done this, but I would like to verbally to extend our deep, deep gratitude to you both again for your work and for sharing this wisdom with us and this heart with us and I think also giving us a moment of an experience of being in the presence of transformative sage warrior healers that is transformative for us and we, we hope that you'll be with us and we'll be with you on this journey. Um, as we go forward, so thank you. And I'd like to invite Dean Hempton to come up and um, say a few final words. You and your sister are pretty terrific as a duo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to add my thanks to um, our great presenters and moderator who stepped in at the last moment. Thank you all for really a very stimulating and yeah, deeply moving presentation. Um, I think this warrior healer um, 
distinction and thinking about that is something that's very important, getting into how to uh, work on these structures and systems that you were getting at. I think they, the phrase that you mentioned about mass incarceration being criminogenic, um, you know, and the book that you, you mentioned by Brian Stevenson, the Just Mercy book, which shows just how it can work, I think is a, something to be thinking hard about. And the school systems as pipelines and how to disrupt those pipelines, I'm tremendously encouraged by those statistics that, because mm -hmm. you know, one of the arguments that's easily brought against some of the things said tonight is that, well, it's soft or it's flaky or it's not going to work <laughs> or it's... Uh, it's, um, uh, and to have that kind of, I mean, as you were saying, even people sitting on the fences seeing it, this really did make a difference um, and therefore worth pursuing. And then finally, this question about what happened, not just in individual cases, but I, I certainly felt that, you know, growing up in Belfast when things really started to deteriorate in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and, you know, people burning you know, each other's neighborhoods and a, a kind of confessional cleansing going on. Like what happened um, you know, to produce that degree of um, anger and animosity and retribution? Uh, so that can work on you know, not just you know, individual levels, but I think in more systemic national and, uh, issues as well. So anyway, thank you for opening all of those things up for us. Just a, a few uh, uh, closing announcements, and I'll try not to keep you too long, but if you're not yet familiar with the excellent, relevant work of the programs that co-sponsor tonight's event, please be sure to check out the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at the Law School, the Prison Studies Project, and the Tr Transformative Justice Series at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We're really eager to build these partnerships with the other graduate schools at Harvard. Yeah. RPP will be co-sponsoring three other public events this month, including on October 19th and 20th, a conference on Christianity, race, and mass incarceration. Um, on October 24th, there will be a talk on victim protection and transitional justice in El Salvador. And on October 30th, a film and discussion on the Bears' Ears in Utah and the successful effort of a coalition of Native American tribes to protect this territory that they consider sacred by having it designated a national monument. Um, so please do uh, put those events in your diary. If you haven't yet done so, be sure to join the RPP mailing list to receive announcements of these and future events. And if you learn of events on religions and peace at Harvard or in the local area, please email us the link so we can put it up under our upcoming events on our website. If you're a Harvard student, faculty member, staff member, or alum, we hope you'll consider joining our emerging One Harvard Sustainable Peace Initiative, which we'd love to see grow, and drop into some of the university-wide conversations we'll be hosting this year. So, as ever, after our RPP colloquium sessions, we have a reception with tea and refreshments in the lobby to give everyone an opportunity to continue the conversation, make connections, make peace with one another. So please stay on if, uh, for that if you can. So many thanks to all of you, but a very special thanks to our uh, three wonderful panelists.